You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. This chapter in Genesis, Genesis 15, as we have noted is so significant to our understanding of God and his mission in the world that I believe it is impossible to overstate its importance in Christian theology. It's impossible to overstate the significance and centrality of this chapter. And because theology affects everyday life, whether we perceive that or not, because theology impacts and affects everyday life, it is impossible to overstate the significance of this chapter in our daily lives. Therefore, it is my prayer that as a result of what we discover in these verses this morning, we will not leave here the same as we came in. It is my prayer that we would leave here having been encountered by the God of this text. It is my prayer for you and for me that we would be stunned at what we see and what we feel as we see the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15 unfold before our eyes. I am praying for a miracle of God's grace to descend upon this place like rain from above. This is the story of God's covenant with Abram. And if you notice, verse 1 of chapter 15 begins with the phrase, after these things. And of course, clearly these things, as Moses is pinning this book, these things is referring to the events that just took place in chapter 14 of Genesis. After these things, that is Abram's rescue of his nephew Lot and his encounter both with the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. After those things, in chapter 14, if you were here, Abram displayed great courage and integrity as his assembled men defeated the kings of the east led by Ketelamer. These kings who had just come off of the a remarkable victory against the five kings from the West. I was trying to picture or imagine what the ride home from Dan, where the battle was taking place or where they pushed the five kings from the East. What was that ride home like for Abram and his men as they headed back to Hebron and the Oaks, Oaks of Mamre? That must have been remarkable. I mean, think about how you would feel. 318 of them are headed back now to Hebron, and they had just defeated Ketelamer and the, the kings of the east. Think about the invincibility they would have felt in that moment as they traveled back home. What kinds of songs would they have sung together? What kind of joy would they have felt? You would think Abram would be feeling this sense of invincibility as a new conquering king in the east. But what is perplexing about the rest of verse 1 of chapter 15 is that we don't find an Abram in chapter 15 verse 1 who feels invincible and powerful. We find the exact opposite. We find an anxious and fearful Abram. 
Read the rest of verse 1 with me. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. Fear not, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And at first glance, this word of consolation from the Lord to Abram doesn't make sense. Abram's a conquering king. This is a high point in the story. Why would Abram need this reminder on the heels of such a clear and sweeping victory? Why is he anxious? Why is he depressed? Why is he fearful? It's possible, the text doesn't say, it's possible that Abram knew that a giant bullseye was now on his back. It's possible that Abram knew that his success would lead to the envy of other nation kings and it was only a matter of time before Abram would have to assemble another army and fight another battle. Perhaps Abram is anxious about that. Maybe the weight of leadership was overwhelming for Abram. Maybe Abram is just simply lamenting the fact that he still doesn't have a son from his barren wife, Sarai. And he'll get into that conversation in verse 2. Maybe it's a mixture of all things. Whatever was causing Abram's anxiety, again, notice and read carefully with me, beloved, what God says to Abram. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Notice that God doesn't say to Abram, fear not, Abram, I'm a shield. He uses a personal pronoun. I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. That's what God says. Notice what God doesn't say. God doesn't say, fear not, Abram, look inside yourself and discover bottomless potential. God doesn't say that. Notice, God doesn't say, fear not, Abram, horses and chariots are on the way. I know there's a bullseye on your back in the ancient east, but don't worry, we're, we're assembling an arsenal. Fear not. God doesn't say that. God says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. I am a cascading wall about you, Abram. And I don't want to just, I mean, chapter 15 is remarkable. And we're about to discover the beauties and the weight and the grandeur of chapter 15. But I don't want us to hurry past verse 1 and miss the consolating peace offered by God to weary and anxious people. Perhaps you're in here this morning and you feel fearful and you feel anxious and you're depressed and well-meaning people, people who love you, keep asking you, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? And you can't give them an answer. You just know something's wrong. I want you to hear God's word to Abram as God's word to you. Fear not. I am your shield. I am your cascading wall of protection. Dear anxious saint, fear not. 
the conversation that follows verse 1 between Abram and the Lord forms our first movement in Genesis 15. I've entitled this first movement, What About the Promise? What about the promise? Look at verses 2 and 3. And Abram, verse 2, said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said in verse 3, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my house will be my heir. Let me build a quick on-ramp here. If you're just joining us, God has already promised this man, Abram, that he would make out of Abram and Sarai a nation of descendants, an offspring. And he would bless Abram and he would bless Sarai and he would make their name great and he would make a nation from them. He'd said that in chapter 12 of Genesis, and he said it again in chapter 13. God even had Abram walk the land. Do you remember in chapter 13? He had him walk the land. Notice the the length and the breadth of this land, Abram, and I'm going to fill this land with your offspring. That was the promise. And so Abram here says in chapter 15 to the Lord, I continue childless. You have given me no offspring. And he says, my only course of action, it seems for me, is to adopt Eliezer of Damascus. It looks like my only option to see your promises fulfilled is adoption. What about the promise? What about the promise? And then God responds to Abram's desire for assurance. Look at verse 4. And behold, whenever, and we're going to get, I think, four beholds in chapter 15. Whenever behold comes to the forefront in God's word, we should what? Behold. (laughs) We should behold. We should listen. And behold, the word of the Lord came. This man, Eliezer, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Verse 5, and he brought him, God brought Abram outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now I realize that this picture may be unimpressive to you and me who live in Orange County. Because we'll go outside tonight. We can try this. Go outside tonight when the sun has gone down and it's pitch black outside and we'll look up and try to number the stars and we'll come up with like five or six. (laughs) Because of all of the light pollution, we can actually count them. Well, there's six. That's not very impressive, Lord. But if you grew up in an area or if you visit an area that doesn't have light pollution, like I grew up in the Joshua Tree area, this is a brilliant promise. If you've ever looked up into a night sky that doesn't have light pollution and you see the dazzling stars in the sky, it is impossible to count them. 
And isn't that the reason? Isn't that what's behind God's invitation to count the stars so that Abram would be overwhelmed by the dazzling backdrop to this promise? And listen, by God taking Abram outside to show him the stars, God is actually communicating two things simultaneously. Not only is God communicating that his descendants would be innumerable. You just can't count them. Not only is God communicating that, but God is also saying that you, Abram, will receive your offspring the same way those stars came into being. By my sovereign power and might. The scene is the God who created the stars saying to his other creation, Abram, I'm going to make a nation that outnumbers the stars. And so God is saying, I'm the one who breathed these stars into existence. Do you think that an heir is too hard for me? Do you think that an offspring through Sarai, your barren wife, is too hard for the God who made the stars? Trust me, Abram. Trust me, I see to my promises. And then verse 6. Verse 6, perhaps one of the most important verses in all of the Bible. And he, verse 6, that is Abram, believed the Lord. And he, that is the Lord, counted it to him, that is Abram, as righteousness. So get the scene. Abram is outside. His his chin is lifted to the heavens. He's looking at the stars. He's hearing God's word. And he believed the Lord. He believed the Lord. That is, he rested on the trustworthiness of God and through his belief, God counted or imputed righteousness. Abram is not believing in belief. He's not having faith in faith. Abram is believing in God's word. Abram is exercising faith in God's promise. Though Abram did not have his son, he was trusting that God would be true to his word. In verse 6, and it says, Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. In verse 6, God is not saying, Abram, you did a righteous thing by believing my word. That's not what's going on here. That's true. Abram is doing a righteous thing by believing God's word. But that's not what God is communicating to Abram. He's not saying you did a righteous thing. Good job. Instead, listen, the word used for righteousness in verse 6 is a noun in the absolute singular form. What does that mean? Who cares? It means... God is not describing a behavior of Abram as righteous, but instead God is declaring something true of Abram himself. Verse 6, in other words, is a declaration from God that Abram is now justified. 
He's now declared innocent. That's what that word justify means. To be declared innocent. The gavel in the courtroom of heaven has struck. And God, the righteous judge, says to Abram, justified. Innocent. This is not describing a behavior of Abram. This is declaring Abram's position before God. And this justification, this declaration of innocence came to Abram on account of his trust in the faithfulness of God and not Abram's works. Please don't miss the fact that God declares Abram righteous before the covenant ceremony takes place. God declares Abram righteous before the sign of the covenant circumcision is commanded in chapter 17. God declares Abram righteous 400 years before the law is ever given. Righteous through faith. Massive. It's not surprising, therefore, that verse 6 of Genesis 15 would echo throughout the walls of redemptive history. Impacting all of the law and the prophets and into the New Testament with the writings of the apostles. The apostle Paul, who was a Hebrew scholar in his own day, picks up on this theme, justification by faith. Righteousness by faith. He picks up on this in Romans chapter 4. Verses 1 through 5. Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abram, or Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has nothing to boast about, but not before God. Verse 3. For what does the scripture say? This was our text, verse 6 of, of Genesis 15. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one, verse 4, who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Beloved, this is Christianity. This is the foundation of what we believe. We are declared righteous like Abram apart from our works. And the, the venue through which righteousness flows to the believer is through faith in God's ability to keep his promises. Another hallmark text is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. This is Paul again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. Paul just sp spells it out. Lest we, like, oh, cultural differences, language differences. Nope. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Then Paul goes on in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Not created by good works, created for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God fully answers the question, what about the promise to Abram? 
He takes him, as it were, by the hand and shows him the stars in the heaven and says, if you can count those, that's how many descendants you'll have. Not only does God answer the question, but in the process grants righteousness to Abram through faith. And that sets the stage for what would happen next. And now we move into the covenant ceremony. Before the covenant is ratified, there is a setting of the table. So if you're a note taker, this is, this is point two or movement two. Setting the table. Setting the table. Look at verse seven and following. And he said to him, that is the Lord, said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Verse 8, but he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? Real quick, just a pastoral note here. Abram is already declared righteous in verse 6. He's declared righteous, and by verse 8, he's already has doubts. Did you notice that? Does that sound familiar <laughs> in your Christian experience? I believe, Lord... I believe I get it. I get it. I'll never question you again next morning. How will I know, Lord, that what you said and what I believed yesterday is actually going to come to pass? This to me is surprisingly reassuring that Father Abraham has to ask again in verse 8. Oh, Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And then it gets really interesting. Look at verse 9. He, that is the Lord, said to him, bring me a heifer three years old. A female goat, three years old. A ram, three years old. A turtle dove and a young pigeon. Verse 10, and he, Abram, brought him all these, that is all these animals, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey, verse 11, came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, if you're reading this or hearing this for the first time, this is totally unexpected. Nothing like this has happened so far in the biblical narrative. And this is just totally unexpected. If you have never read this section before, as it's been said, Abram is given a 4,000-year-old grocery list from the Lord, a very specific list. God is saying to Abram, here, I want you to get these items and bring them back. A very specific list, a, a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. It's a surprising moment in the narrative, perhaps the only thing more surprising than that is that Abram seems to know exactly what to do with them. Did you notice in the text, without any instruction, Abram cuts them all in half. Abram doesn't receive any instruction from the Lord. He just cuts them in half. With the exception of, of the birds. Perhaps the birds were too small. I don't know why they weren't cut in half. But he lays the two halves of the animal now one over against the other, creating a path of dead animals. A very bloody, grotesque path of dead animals. 
each half facing each other so that the blood would, that would flow would flow into each other, creating a little river or a brook of blood. This is a grotesque scene. But why did Abram know what to do? Or how did Abram know what to do? Abram knew what to do with these animals because Abram, along with the rest of the ancient East, listen, don't tune out. Abram, along with the rest of the ancient East, was familiar with covenant rituals. Abram knew what took place in a solemn agreement between two parties. This is not God's creation. This idea of covenant is not a creation by God. This was something already functioning in the culture when God creates this covenant with Abram. God's going to do it much differently, but the actual ceremony and the setting up of the ceremony was very familiar territory for Abram. So Abram knew what to do. Abram knew that in a solemn ceremony between two parties, that's what a covenant is, a solemn agreement between two parties in the ancient Near East, you get an animal and you cut it in half and you create a path. And whether this was to uh, inaugurate a wedding, a birthright, to negotiate a huge land acquisition or deal, a covenant would be ratified in order to communicate the significance of the agreement. And so, Abram sets the table, and then he waits, and he waits, and he waits, and birds of of prey come and start landing on the carcasses, perhaps foreshadowing what would be prophesied in just a few short verses later. But as those birds of prey descend on the carcasses, Abram shoots them away. Look at verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. If you're familiar with the Bible at all, chances are you have witnessed this kind of phenomenon before, not the cutting of the covenant, not the cutting of the animals, but the dreadful darkness that oftentimes accompanies the presence of God. Think of Mount Sinai in the Exodus story. Remember when Moses ascends Mount Sinai and God is giving him the law? You remember that scene? That scene, the mountain was filled with thunderclaps of darkness and, and glory and fear broke out among everyone as the mountain shook in darkness and lightning and, and fear broke out among all who were there. It seems like this is a pattern when, when God's presence showed up, shows up, there is darkness and there is terror. The sheer weight of his glory disrupts the human ex- experience. The awesome might of his presence here in this text, shook Abram so that dread fell. And that word fell means it was, it was not expected. And so he drifts off in this trance-like visionary sleep that's more like a nightmare. And while Abram is in this dreadful sleep, 
God prophesies over the generation that will come from Abram. Look at verses 13 and following. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, that's Egypt, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But, verse 14, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Verse 15, as for you, Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So there's Abram. He's already cut the pieces. It's a bloody mess. There's a path of blood down the middle. Abram's off to the side. He's in a trance-like sleep. And God speaks to him in this scene and says, know for certain. He prophesies over the nation of Israel. Know for certain that something, it's going to get really bad before it gets really good. Know for certain your people are going to be enslaved by Egyptians, by a Pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph. And he will enslave your people. Some have suggested that maybe that's why, that's what's signified in the birds of the prey coming down on the carcasses. There's like, like Egypt, like the, the people, the children of Israel in Egypt. And, and there's Abram shooing them away, these oppressors. So bad news, your people are going to be enslaved, Abram. But good news, I will deliver your people. I will make true on your promises. And the fourth generation will come out. In my time, your people will possess the land. And on this point, John Calvin writes something very insightful. He says this, it is to be observed that before one son was given to Abram, before he got any heir, before he got any offspring, Abram heard that his seed would be in captivity and slavery for a long time. That's not great news. Calvin continues, he says, thus does the Lord deal with his own people. He always makes a beginning from death. So that by quickening the dead, he more abundantly manifests his power, end quote. In other words, this is how God chooses to work the redemption of his people. The cross always comes before glory. Suffering always comes before paradise. Tribulation comes. Then the ripping open of the clouds and the Son of Man descending upon them in glory. Suffering and then paradise. And those who would want to circumvent this paradigm will do so at their own peril This is God's way of saving his people. The cross, then resurrection. And oh, beloved saints, resurrection is coming. So then, the table is set. The animals have been gathered. The ancient practice of ritual blood covenants is in place. A prophecy over Abram's seed is given. Let's look now to the final scene in our text, the cutting of the covenant. 
the cutting of the covenant. Verse 17 and following. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made, or in Hebrew, karat, made, cut, literally means cut. The Lord cut a covenant between Abram or with Abram saying, quote, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. This is the cutting of the covenant. Described here, listen, in verse 17 is what is called a theophany. A theophany. That is a visible manifestation of the otherwise invisible God. That's what a theophany is. A visible manifestation of the otherwise invisible spirit God. So then the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch, which are gliding through the middle of this grotesque scene, is God himself. It is a visible manifestation of God himself. Much speculation, as you can imagine, has been given regarding why God chose a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. Why these items to be the visible manifestation of God in the present? Some suggest the obscurity of the smoke from the fire pot. The obscurity of the smoke provides the backdrop for the light of the torch, which emerges out of the darkness, signifying God's rescue of his people from the bewildering darkness of sin, the light cutting through the darkness. The fact is, we don't know for sure, I don't know for sure why God chose these specific things to represent himself in this covenant. However, there is one thing that is perfectly clear. God does prefer, throughout redemptive history, God does prefer this kind of imagery when he is showing up in places. Think again of Moses as he stands before the burning bush. Smoke and fire are in the bush, but not consuming the bush. That's another theophany. And out of the burning bush, God is speaking to his servant Moses. Fire and smoke representing the very presence of God, the visible manifestation of God. Think also of the cloud by day and the fire by night, also in the Exodus story. There's the cloud by day that covered them and kept them cool. The fire by night that guided them through the wilderness. God likes to display himself in this cloud of smoke. Or the Shekinah glory that would fill the temple. The smoke would fill the temple. The cloud would fill the temple. And then light or fire would break through the darkness and the obscurity. Whatever the case, light shining out of the obscurity of the smoke or clouds is this common visual that God gives to communicate his very own presence. So there's the scene. The smoking pot, the torch gliding through the pieces. Notice with me 
who's not there in between the pieces. Abram's there, he's in the area, but he's not participating in the ceremony itself. Remember an ancient covenant, whenever an ancient covenant was given, that solemn agreement between two parties, two parties. Wow, there you go, there's a party. Two parties. And when they would make this solemn agreement, the two parties would start at one end of the aisle and they would work together until they were both in the middle of the aisle of the covenant. And they would say something to the effect. Each party would say something to the effect. If I don't keep my end of this deal, may I become like one of these animals. This is a blood covenant. This is a serious, solemn agreement. If I don't keep my end of the deal, may I become like one of these. But what's a divine mystery is Abram is not in the middle of the aisle. God alone is moving through the covenant pieces. God alone moves through the pieces. Abram is still passive. He's still in this sort of trance-like state. And all he can do in this moment is watch God move through this covenant. Move through this solemn agreement. Abram wasn't even asked to join the ceremony. Yet the covenant would directly benefit him and his descendants. And rather than God meeting Abram in the middle, instead God moves all the way through the pieces alone. And you and I as Bible students really have to ask the question, why is this happening? What does this mean? This is where God is deflecting from the ordinary norms of a covenant. God alone is moving through the pieces. What does it mean? Beloved, this means that this covenant in Genesis 15, this covenant was a covenant of pure, unrelenting, unfettered grace. This was, in Genesis 15, a unilateral move from God on behalf of Abram and his descendants. This was a unilateral covenant. In fact, the God who cannot die, as he moves through the pieces, is communicating to the reader. The God who cannot die is saying, may I become like one of these dead animals if I don't come through on my promises. What does that mean? It means that if the God who cannot die is staking his very life upon this promise, that makes his promise utterly secure. The God of the Bible unilaterally moves toward sinners. Do you feel the love of God in this text? I don't want you to just see it. I want you to feel it. I want us to be like Abram in that sleep-like trance, watching God make a covenant of pure grace with his people. 
what began with dreadful and fear, dreadful fear for Abram must have turned to pure joy as he watches God ratify this blood covenant apart from human effort. That's what it means. The second question we have to ask is what does it mean for us today? Why should this transform our daily lives? Well, friends, beloved guests, another dreadful darkness would descend in the ancient East again. In fact, this time it would be about 2,000 years after this moment in Genesis 15. Another dreadful darkness and fear would come over the ancient East again. In our text is Matthew 27. Let me read this to you. We should have it on the screen. Matthew 27, verses 45 to 50. See if you recognize the scene. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. This was at high noon. There shouldn't have been darkness, but darkness descends. It falls upon this moment. Darkness falls upon this moment. Verse 46, in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders Hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge filled with it, filled with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Ian Duguid, an Old Testament scholar from WTS, writes this. By what figure could God have demonstrated his commitment more graphically to Abram? How could God have done this more graphically? How could it have been displayed more vividly? He says, the only way would have been for the figure to become a reality for the ever living God to take on human nature and taste death in the place of covenant breaking children. And that is precisely what God did in Jesus Christ. On the cross, the covenant curse fell completely on Jesus. So that the guilty ones who placed their trust in him might experience the blessing of the covenant. Jesus, he goes on, bore the punishment for our sins so that God might be our God and we might be his people, end quote. Jesus became like one of those slain animals. Not because God failed to keep his side of the covenant, but instead Jesus died in order to pay the cost for our disobedience. Do you realize that's why he became a man? 
the eternal God, God the Son, puts on flesh, enters the the baptism of sinners. He does that to represent rebels, though he had no sin in himself. Jesus becomes like one of those slain animals, not because God relented on his promise, but because God fulfilled his promise to save sinners who don't deserve it. Jesus became like one of us. We should have been one of those animals. We should have been cut in two. Our blood should have been spilt. Our blood should have been poured out. We should have been there. That was our fate. But instead, Jesus dies for the ungodly. Jesus dies for wearied sinners, tired, broken, humbled by their sin, so that we might find ultimate rest in him. So that covenant breakers like you and me could become family with God. That's why this matters. That's why Genesis 15 ought to strike us with profound significance. So that we might hear the words of Galatians 3 by Paul the Apostle and believe by faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abram's offspring, heirs according to promise. So, fear not, dear Christian. God is your shield. Your reward shall be very great.